Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, bipolar disorder, suicide, overcoming grief after that suicide, continuing personal growth and soul selves framework. We're going to learn all of that and more when we have a conversation with an individual that lost her twin flame to suicide and now celebrates her grief. Stay tuned. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Carrie Scott. She's an author, a speaker, a designer, and a thought leader. In 2002, she was awakened by grief when she lost her twin flame to suicide. Now, because of that tragic death, her purpose in life is to align the energies of her heart and her throat to share her grief journey and inspire suicide survivors to break their silence. She's bringing voice to a silent epidemic. We've there's a lot of us that have been through this. I've been, this, been through this personally and professionally, so I'm uh, looking forward to this conversation. This is an awakening journey that emerged the soul selves framework, a mindset tool that brings awareness to the patterns of behavior that keeps us from becoming our authentic selves. In this episode, we're going to learn her journey, discuss the stigma around grief, death, suicide, and mental health. And if you're going through this yourself or know someone who is, how to celebrate that grief to transform your loss into self-love. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Carrie, I really appreciate your journey. As I said earlier before we started, I think that uh, what you've come through and have been able to help others uh, to motivate, to be inspired, to educate them, and to move them forward from this uh, is, a, is a wonderful thing. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I, I really feel like I'm still at the beginning of this journey, even though my awakening has been going on probably for about five years now. But I know every time that I have the opportunity to share my story, I encounter someone else who has had a similar experience. And I think that has been the most beautiful part of this journey is just sharing that space together, even if it's just for, you know, a brief moment, or if it makes, you know, a lifelong connection. It's those, those connections that um, I really cherish each time. That's amazing. Yeah, because we, as we know, life can change in an instant. So to have that knowledge and that connection, actually, I think is a very important thing. Um, as, as you know, uh, from listening to the podcast, I, I love to kind of unfold your life. So like start at the beginning and you know, kind of find out where you came from and, and some things like that and how you got to where you're at. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and I went to university uh, at the University of Calgary. We lived, honestly, just a few blocks away so I could walk to the university every day. And I decided uh, to study astrophysics. And so I have a Bachelor of Science in Astrophysics. And um, during that time, when I was at university, um, I met um, a fellow. I thought he was the love of my life. And I actually had known him 
um, through my childhood, we always vacationed um, in the summer at this same um, retreat center. It's, it's this little place in the Okanagan called Naramata Center. And the center itself was founded by um, my grandfather and a, a bunch of other United Church ministers. And so it has always held a, a special place for me in my heart. And um, it's kind of the place that you go and you learn about your spirituality and you're welcomed and anything is, is, is a go there. It's just such an open, loving place. And I've made such strong friendships and met so many people over the years while I was there. So that was always a time in my life that I looked forward to summer after summer. So during my time in university, um, I met uh, Gabriel, as I refer to him in the book, and he and I dated long distance for a little while. Um, it was after I graduated from uh, university that um, he and I um, sort of split ways and um, he was diagnosed with bipolar illness in 2001 and then by 2002 he took his life by suicide. You know, suicide is a, um, it affects each one of us as survivors. It, it, you know that we that have affect, has been affected by suicide. Um, it sounds very... Uh, it's an interesting approach to, to call us survivors, but we are because, as you know, we uh, have to experience that over and over again. Sometimes, in um, the grief, the the grief, the uh, anger, the depression, the anything that you experience when losing someone, it kind of is emphasized when it's when it's with suicide because of so many other factors that play into this. Um, <clears throat> when you um, if I can backtrack just a just a second, if you don't mind, uh, what did you go to university for? Oh, when I studied, I studied astrophysics. Astrophysics—that's that's a very interesting subject, <laughs> actually. <laughs> uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Sort of coming from that arena. Well, it's so funny because I always wanted to be a fashion designer, but the university didn't offer fashion design, and so. At the time, I was really strong in math, and I enjoyed physics, and um, I was actually at Naramata um, Center for um, sort of a youth retreat that is called Winter Session, and a comet was flying through the sky. It was the comet Hakutaki. So this would have been, um, what year was that? 1996, I think. And it just inspired me, and it gave me the idea that I should study astronomy. And and at the University of Calgary, they didn't have a department of astronomy, they had a department of astrophysics. So that okay, was the course about. that I... <laughs> What, 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 yeah. a, what a, uh, a contrast from fashion designer to astrophysicist. I, it's funny because during um, one of the summers, I actually went to study fashion design at Parsons in New York for uh, like a six week summer program. And so the sort of the running joke was that I'd be designing spacesuits or something like that as a career. <laughs> but no, <that's>... um, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's very cool, very cool. So what did, now Gabriel went to the same school. Where, where was he going when you first met him? 
So actually, I met him again at Naramata Center. He um, grew up in California and he lived in California. And so um, our paths would cross in the summertime. And um, then we were at uh, another a, a youth con um, Kairos youth conference in uh, September of 1998 when we finally really took note of one another and started dating. And so we carried on a long distance relationship with me in Calgary and him in California for um, kind of the course of a few months um, over over the next year, probably. So now you, I know you refer to him as your twin flame uh, in the notes that you sent me and in in your in your some uh, information on your website and so forth. Um, help us understand what twin flame means. Yeah, it's it's a funny thing for me. I twin flame is something that has helped me understand the depth of the relationship that I had with Gabriel, and it's still something that I still sort of struggle to embrace, but I haven't found a better term yet. So this is the one that I stick with. But essentially, um, as I started doing research, it's it's like soul mates, but at, at another level. So as I understand it, a twin flame is where we are two beings that have come from the same soul. So our souls like originated at the same time and then we're split apart. And when we come back together in person, the, the sensations and the, the energy that's exchanged between us is kind of out of this world. Like it just feels like lifetimes have been brought together. Like there's this, this intensity of our relationship. And because of how intense that relationship is, there's also sort of this blowback, I guess that happens. And it often can be described as one person running and um, it causes us to go into the depths of our soul to be able to really remove all of the trauma remove all of the issues and resolve all of those things that are unresolved in order for us again to come together in a true union and um, I, I really felt that way with meeting Gabriel. Everything changed after that once we dated. And it, it took me probably almost two decades to acknowledge the work that I needed to start doing. But once I turned that sort of lens inward on myself and, and did the work to be able to um, release the trauma and understand my limiting beliefs and, and so on, um, huge shifts have started to happen in my life. And I really feel that even though Gabriel is in spirit, he has become closer in, in that sense. And he's really supported me on this journey. And so I, I never really feel like I'm without him. He's always got a certain presence and he makes that presence known really regularly now, um, which is coming from where I was when I was deep in my grief to where I feel like I am now, it's it's a world of difference. And I feel so much more celebratory as as the title of the book suggests uh, that, you know, my, my grief isn't a painful place to be anymore. If we can go back a little bit on that journey, um, do, uh, do you, did he have any type of uh, like a suicidal ideology or anything that would indicate that he was going to take his own life? Or... Um, I know that you said he was diagnosed with bipolar. And do you think that uh, that contributed to that situation 
in that downfall? Absolutely. This has been part of my journey is figuring out what those last few years of his life looked like. Because when we were together, when we were dating, um, there was no clear indication that he um, was living with a mental illness. And um, it wasn't until after that he got his diagnosis. And um, during, during those few years, well, really that the last year of his life, um, we would communicate on, by telephone, but he never discussed with me what he was going through. And so after he passed, I learned that he had um, attempted suicide numerous times, as well as um, was on, on medication for his bipolar um, symptoms. But the idea that he was suicidal, I, I've learned now, is really a symptom of bipolar illness. So when you're, when you're having that, those thoughts and you're in that place and, um, you know, suicide becomes something that you're thinking about regularly, that itself is a symptom of the illness. And it, it, I've never been able to, like, consider it that way until recently. But having that information, I think, is really helpful for somebody struggling with bipolar illness to, to recognize that and, and say, look, okay, this is what I'm thinking. This is what's going on for me. This is when I, I need to ask for help or, or do the steps that they know to do in order to move themselves back into a place of more regulation. I agree with that. And, you know, and not, every, not everybody that commits suicide has bipolar. I mean, they go through depression, anxiety, as we started about and prefaced earlier when we were talking before this started, you know, I lost a, um, one of my best friends, actually, the, the godfather of my kids, uh, another law enforcement officer. I got him into law enforcement, you know, never expected him to take his own life. And um, everything, I talked to him the week before he took his life and it, everything seemed to be perfectly fine. You know, nobody would have even known that, that this was going to or coming about. Um, you know, obviously there were some things that led up to his his situation that that um, were long held. Um, he'd been involved in a shooting. He'd been involved in some other things, and I think that played a contributing factor in his particular case. But those of you that are out there listening and, and watching, you know, sometimes there isn't any indication that they're going to do this. Sometimes it is a, 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 a I won't say a split second decision, but they don't tell anybody. They keep it to themselves, and you know, and then it's just done, and it's over with. And I think, and, and I, you may have felt the same way because I know grief has affected you for a long time. You know, sometimes we take on that, um, we take on that grief for a really long time. It's not the normal grieving process after losing somebody because, and and again, I'd like to know your feelings on this, but you know, sometimes we have to get over. Do we blame ourselves? Is there something I could have done? Why couldn't I see this? You know, why couldn't I reach out? Was there more that I can do? And things like that. Did you go through any or all of those? All of them. All of them, absolutely. I probably had those questions going through my mind on a daily basis. And I, I think that's one of the um, greatest things that suicide survivors like us struggle with is those unresolved questions. And and the constant 
grief or, or the constant guilt and shame that we take on as individuals as we're trying to understand what happened. And, and because suicide is such a sudden thing, um, it, it just amplifies those feelings in a way that um, really silences us. And, and we mentioned this before, when it comes to death, um, it's a hard topic to talk about. It's uncomfortable and it's not something that we normally do. And then if that death is a suicide, then that just adds another layer of complexity to the situation because that again is something that has so much shame and so much guilt and, and so many unresolved and unknowns surrounding it that it, it adds to the silence. And then if that suicide was caused by mental illness, again, there's more complexity and more silence added to it because we have, uh, you know, in our society, n not made it okay to talk about mental illness. And um, then in, in my case, because it was an ex-boyfriend and somebody that I wasn't seeing and somebody who wasn't in my life, it just, it just sort of eliminated the conversation about my grief altogether because all of these, these sort of shameful, silent topics just compounded to, to make the whole conversation just non-existent. It just wasn't something that was felt okay to talk about. It. And so having the, the inspiration or allowing myself to be vulnerable to, to talk about all of these things has really lifted a huge weight that I carried for almost two decades in silence. And um, like I said, it just uh, has been able to open up the conversation for other people to talk about their experiences. Yeah, which is a good thing. I mean, it, it, uh, you mentioned it earlier. <coughs> Excuse me. Death in, in society, at least in the United States, death is a taboo subject. We don't talk about it. You know, if somebody dies, we usually don't hear the details of it unless you see it on the news. Um, and even then, it's not expanded upon very much personally it, within our family lives. Death isn't, I think, discussed in such a way that uh, gives uh, children growing up to an understanding of what death is and what it means and, and what happens when somebody somebody dies. Suicide is a... You know, I told you that I've had more than one individual. Another friend of mine, a firefighter, AMT, he also committed suicide, and another cop that committed suicide. Um, it, it is something within ourselves that, you know, and, and we were in different states because I moved from Colorado to Arizona and I was a cop in Colorado. So these people I had known in Colorado, not, not here, which made it more difficult for me as well to help, you know, to deal with it and manage it because of that distance that was there. And although I talked to them on the phone regularly, it was one of those situations that it, it the compounding is what you were feeling, you know, all, all came present. Um, I, I was, I, in my position as a cop, dealt with death on a more frequent basis, which made it a little bit easier, saying I understand because, you know, this stuff kind of happens, and investigating suicides. It, you know, I always felt empathy and compassion for the people that I was delivering those messages to um, because I did understand it. I did empathize with it uh, from that perspective, but 
each and every time I did it, I really felt, I felt kind of bad and guilty myself for having to deliver that message. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I can't, I can't imagine. Uh, one of the sort of situations that I explore and celebrate your grief is um, when, because when Gabriel um, committed suicide, he stepped in front of a train. And so I often wonder, like, what was the scene, you know, that unfolded with the, the driver of the train and then in the hospital? And well, and I mean, even before he made it to the hospital, like all of the um, uh, and the ambulance drivers and the, the people that sort of came to all help the first him. responders, all the, thank you, the first responders, what, you know, what was their experience having to deal with that? So it's, it's really, um, it's quite sacred to have this conversation with you being a first responder and having all of those firsthand experiences and and knowing the empathy that you held in that moment for you know the person as well as their family because it's such a traumatic experience and um yeah it's, it's obviously not anything we would wish on, on anybody so well it yeah. and and coming from a first responder i can tell you that any any death that we had gone to, whether it be a homicide, a suicide, or unintended death, or an intended death, you know, it is, we are still human beings. And in that particular instance, you know, we have to, as a first responder, whether you be a, a police officer, firefighter, or an EMT, a doctor, a nurse, you have to create a certain boundary around you because if you allow it to compound upon you, you can't effectively do your job. So you, you, that's why, that's why a lot of people in first responders end up drinking or, you know, other stuff because they've had to compress that and push it down inside. But I can give you my word that whoever responded to that had empathy and compassion for you. So it's, you know, anytime I ever, uh, I had five suicides during one Christmas Eve, Christmas Day that I investigated and uh, that was the most difficult holiday that still sticks with me to this day. You know, having to deliver those messages on those days and, you know, it makes you stop and wonder. Um, how how were you informed that um, Gabriel had committed suicide? I heard from a friend. Um, we had a, a, a mutual friend and he had called me and um, let me know over the phone. So. Yeah, I still I still remember that phone conversation too, and and um, I I my sister was there in our house at the time, and she remembers my reaction on the phone, and she knew instantly, you know, something horrible had happened, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's not a message that can oh, I can't I can't even I mean to imagine um, having to deliver that message. To somebody too that it's just such a difficult thing to have to say it, it is yeah. I, I will say that yes it is uh, so again we're still human and you know it affects us and we carry that with us as we move forward in life that's why you see some cops that go back and start investigating cold cases because they had cases that they couldn't solve you know and they went you know a, a detective at uh, Lou Smith from the Colorado Police Department that um he was one of those kind of guys. He, he was like, walk a, I walk a mile in their shoes. And, you know, no matter what it was, whether it be suicide or homicide, he was a homicide investigator, but, you know, you, it has to start somewhere. 
And he says every time he took on a case, it was, I'm going to walk a mile in that person's shoes. And, you know, and he took it to heart, actually. It was very, yeah, he's a very good guy, very good guy. He's passed, but um, so he's not, he's not doing that any longer, but maybe from the other side he is. <laughs> um, how long did, I, <laughs> um, I know that uh, you carried an immense amount of guilt and shame, um, which we just talked about. How did you uh, kind of start to recognize that you needed to uh, get a deeper understanding of how to manage that? I, I had an interesting experience on my 40th birthday. And uh, as a birthday present to myself, I went into a sensory deprivation tank or a float tank. And so I, at the, at the time, my children were both quite young. And I thought that having like an hour of alone time in pure silence would be, you know, the greatest gift that I could give myself. I can so, relate to that. <laughs> as a parent, yes. Yeah. So I realized quite quickly once I was in there that silence wasn't achievable. I have, you know, this constant ringing in my ears and then, you know, the, the thoughts start coming and churning. And, and so it's, it's quite an interesting experience thinking, you know, you're going to have this peace, but you really don't because the, the peace has to come from within you. And um, I, I had to recall how to meditate because it's not something that I had practiced regularly. And uh, in, in that sensory deprivation tank, I sort of started concentrating on all the different chakras in, in my body and um, paying attention to sort of the thoughts that arose at each one. And I um, remembered to sort of like trap each thought in a bubble and, and let them float away and on and on it went. But when it came to my heart chakra, I had, um, this immense pain that started to come forth and, you know, the tears started to flow. And, and as my tears were dripping into the saltwater bath, the salt was leaking back into my eyes and making them sting even more. And so it was this whole sort of like concophony of emotions and sensations that was happening. And, and, and so much of that pain I realized was because of the loss that I felt with Gabriel. And he, you know, was so much a part of my heart that I felt sort of this energetic block there. And I knew that if I was going to, you know, live the next 40 years of my life, I needed to resolve that because it was something that I knew I thought about every day, but nobody else knew that I thought about every day. And it just, it just wasn't, there wasn't a balance between the life that I was living externally and the life that I was living inside of my mind and, and the thoughts that I was having, right? I needed to somehow merge those two in order to um, carry on in a healthy, in a healthy way. And so once I, I realized that um, I started exploring uh, meditation again, and I started opening myself up to, to spirituality and and I had to acknowledge that I had some sensitivities like extreme sensitivities around suicide and uh, obviously around um, any of the reminders that would come up in life around Gabriel and um, I really had to sit with them and 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 release them and so part of my 
journey and part of my writing journey was doing research and reading about suicide and suicide survivors. And I came across uh, this one book called Silent Grief, I believe it was called. And it said that suicide survivors have a different experience with grief. They often become frozen in their grief and uh, isn't something that is processed um, potentially for many, many, many years. And, and that really resonated. I didn't realize until I read that, that that's what was happening to me. I, I thought that the way that I was grieving was normal. And I thought that everybody grieved this way. And I, I didn't know that I should be talking about it. I didn't know that I could feel differently about it. I didn't know that I didn't have to let it go and that I didn't have to move on. And all these other, I would say, all these other ways of grieving started to come into my um, reality. And it helped me sort of resolve the way that I was feeling and really normalize the, the experiences that I was having and, and make it okay. because. I think for you know those those two decades, I I put my grief in in sort of I compartmentalized it and put it away, and I only would let it out in the places where I felt it was safe, and that was when I was very much alone and and in a private place, and I avoided all other circumstances in my life where I know that I would be triggered by that grief, like like going to yoga or going to church and and listening to certain songs, you know, I, I, I just separated that out so that it wouldn't become an issue. But by, by doing that, I was, I was also putting part of myself away, you know, and I, so I wasn't being completely authentic to who I was. And um, essentially, like my, my, my grief has had its very own ego. And it was protecting me from things that didn't I didn't need to be protected from on some level. So um, can I ask yeah. you something? Can I interrupt <laughs> yeah. just for one second? Um, so had you practiced because you, you mentioned you put that stuff away like yoga and you couldn't meditate. Had you been practicing meditation and yoga prior to this whole incident and and you and it kind of put a stop or you, it halted that your progress with with meditation and yoga from that perspective? So when Gabriel and I dated, uh, I, our relationship was very um, rooted in spirituality. He was a, a very spiritual person and he had a great understanding of spiritual concepts and it was something that we talked about quite a lot. And so um, after he passed, I realized that exploring that part of myself wasn't comfortable anymore because I always found him there. And so I, I eventually just stopped doing that. Like I would try and go to a yoga class and um, you know, at the, at the end of each class, you end up in Shavasana where you're lying in, in the corpse pose. And um, that stillness was just enough space for my thoughts to go to him. And so inevitably I would end up in 
my full on grief state and crying and I, I wouldn't want anybody to know. So I would just lie there as still as I possibly could and, and, and wait for the tears to dry on my cheeks and, and hope that nobody noticed and try not to, you know, make a norfling sound. And, and it was just so uncomfortable to be in, in that grief and in a public place that I, um, I just stopped going. I just stopped going. And then like other places would be when, um, uh, like it, people were singing in a choir, children were singing, like all of those those states that are so typically beautiful and, you know, really bring you into sort of a higher, sort of more spiritual, sacred place. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't I couldn't participate in those activities anymore because they just were such a trigger for me and such a trigger for my grief because, like I said, Gabriel was, was there in all of those situations. So then... Once you went into the deprivation tank, that that gave you the opportunity to kind of reawaken from yeah. that from yeah. that point to kind of reawaken your grief and recognize it and start working through it. Then, exactly, yeah, yeah, and th and that's when I really started writing "Celebrate Your Grief." And so, um, "Celebrate Your Grief" is is really was written as I was having this grief awakening and. Um, learning the learnings that I was having sort of on a moment by moment basis. The, the, the writing of it helped me uncover so many um, beautiful gifts that I, I didn't even know were possible and it helped me sort of tap into um, the sort of communication mm -hmm. that I feel Gabriel and I share and, and he really would lead me to find information about him and information about myself that I needed to learn. And, and it's just every day there was sort of this new uncovery and, and experience as it unfolded. Do you think that, um, from that perspective, how do you think grief transformed you? It, it made me, I, I think one of the, the core learnings that I had was that it wasn't so much Gabriel that I was missing, it was me. Um, I have this quote, I'll read it to you, because this one really, really changed my um, view as I, was, as I was writing. It's from Miriam Hazna. It says, when you feel a void from missing someone, what you're actually feeling is missing the connection to yourself that you have when you are with that person. And so, I made the connection that when I was connecting with my higher self, it was, it was Gabriel's voice that I could hear. And I realized that when we were together and, and the joy that we were feeling and the, the love that I felt for him, it was actually a complete reflection of the love that my higher self had for me. And so being able to understand that, that, that reflection piece and like how critical that was, I, I realized that I could still find that sensation of love that I felt when I felt with him and that I always associated only with him. But I could now find that any time within myself if I just tuned into it. And so it was just a matter of realigning the way that I was approaching my life and approaching my thoughts and shifting my beliefs 
to accept that I didn't need him specifically to be alive and in my life and present all the time um, in order to feel that way. I can feel that way anytime because it was always just my higher self reflecting to me how much love I'm capable of feeling for me or anyone at any given time. That's, that's amazing. That's brilliant, actually. Did, um, do you think that it, it uh, put you back on a spiritual path that, that you felt you were missing? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this was the path that I was always meant to be on. And I just, I just kept pushing it away and pushing it away because it was too painful. And I, I didn't have the skills to deal with it. And I, I didn't know that right. I, I was supposed to, or I wasn't allowing myself to be able to feel the grief that I needed to feel. And, and process it. And so being on this path feels like, it feels like coming home. Like it feels like the the place I was always meant to be. And and just recognizing, you know, to, to put myself on that edge of vulnerability all the time is, is, is where that expansion happens. And, and then by tuning into, you know, that, that infinite sort of unconditional love for myself, I am walking into or opening myself up to, you know, this infinite potential that I, right. I, I didn't even realize was possible. And so it's so rewarding and so exhilarating. And I truly, I want everybody to feel this way as much as possible because it's such a, a gift to be able to recognize that it's all within us. It always has been all the time. Yeah. I, I, I uh, I applaud you for that statement because in reality, I think we all need to recognize that we can go on our own individual spiritual journeys no matter what the circumstances and look deep within inside ourselves to understand that the light that we're seeking is within us and that uh, we can just bring that forward and bring it out of us to kind of help us move forward as well as others, you know, to help others move out of that as well. Um, How do you think... uh, how to me ask this correctly? How can we recognize when we need to take that step towards reaching deep inside ourselves for to uh, reconnect with the spiritual side? So, tell me if you can hear me. Okay, my headphones ran out of juice. So I can. Okay. <laughs> uh, I in this in this journey, I I recognize that there are sort of stages or what I call markers on this journey to self-realization. And um, this is where my soul selves framework emerged from from my grief journey and, and from writing Celebrate Your Grief. And the, the, the first sense of that is when we're firmly rooted in our ego. And uh, this is the place that I call the bodily self. So it's like the first marker of the soul cells framework. And uh, Kitty saying hi. Saying hi, yeah. <laughs> she does this regularly. That's okay. I'm a cat person, so it's all good. <laughs> so in the bodily self, it's a time when we feel like a victim and um often i think a lot of us sort of go through life 
and I know I'm completely guilty of this. I went through the majority of, you know, the first 40 years of my life in this sort of victim mentality. And I didn't realize there was another way of looking at life. And I thought, well, you know, I'll feel better if so-and-so does this, or I'll feel better, you know, if that didn't happen, or, you know, it, you, it's come up with all these excuses and, and blame um, outside of yourself. So, you know, you're looking at the world externally and and reacting to it rather than realizing that you know we as individuals have the power to create the reality that um, exists in in our day-to-day -day lives and so i think that sort of the first step for me has always been to to recognize now when i'm having those thoughts and when i'm having those conversations about being a victim and what is it that I'm a victim of and, and how is my ego showing up and, and taking control or taking the power away from, from my soul in, in this moment. And so acknowledging that and taking responsibility, that was a huge part of my awakening journey, uh, just taking responsibility for those thoughts and, and those actions. And, and then, you know, I think once we do that, the guidance starts to show up for us as we, as we become more open to it. Do you think, um, I mean, that's a great way of looking at the perspective. I think that uh, being able to recognize it, number one, is beneficial because once we recognize it, then we can embrace it. And it's really important. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm just getting over a slight chest issue, so my apologies. I understand. Um, from this perspective, I know that uh, I'd like to kind of explore this. Kitty cat came up to say hi. <laughs> What's your cat's name? This is Rose. Rose. Hello, Rose. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. Um, what does it... Coming from that perspective, I know that you, the book, like you, you made reference to the book, the fact you started writing it and putting your thoughts and everything involved with that. What does it mean to celebrate your grief from that perspective? Because sometimes, I know that we've discussed briefly that, you know, uh, as a suicide survivor, uh, from, from the perspective of being uh, uh, an ex-boyfriend, a, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, a spouse, a son, a daughter, a grandma, you know, any buddy that's very close to us that happens to commit suicide. We carry that guilt with us for some time and that grief with us. And as you said earlier, we grieve differently. And um, it, it is different than, than losing a, a friend to natural death or to even to uh, uh, like a car crash or something like that or a heart attack or something that happens to take place. Um, we are indoctrinated to kind of understand that there's a, a pattern we go through anger depression and i know that those five rules don't really they weren't designed to fit that way but unfortunately our our innate mentality takes us through that but um and and, and forgive me for in order to celebrate grief compared to feeling it holding it, embracing it, how do we celebrate grief? So it's interesting that you bring up the five um, 
stages of grief because as I was writing this, um, the sixth stage was released in a book and the sixth stage is finding meaning. And I felt like that's what I was finally doing in, in writing about this and opening myself up about it and, and being vulnerable. I was finding meaning in this death that held no meaning to me for, you know, two decades. And that, that is, is one of the ways that I was celebrating and the, the sort of the purpose of, of celebrating any achievement or any, um, any blessing that comes into your life uh, is so that more of it will be attracted to you. So, um, when I say celebrate your grief, I, I don't mean to attract more grief into my life by any means, but what I want to attract more of is that connection that I found with myself because of the grief experience and the grief journey that I went on. I, I wanted to celebrate that I had found this deep self-love and that I, I realized it was available to me all the time and that I could go to it and, um, and, and, and be in that space more and more of the time and sort of allow what the universe was going to bring to me and, and allow that potential and that expansion to come more and more of the time. And then in addition to that, um, I learned that I have this sort of emotional guidance system that is, is one of the tools that I can use on my day-to-day -day journey to help me navigate um, that, that experience from the ego to the soul and in, in any aspect of my life. And this is where, again, the soul cells framework kind of comes in to explain that, that journey a little bit more. But I was celebrating when I felt good and when I felt joyful and when I felt happiness and then when I was having sort of a negative reaction to uh, an experience or being and triggered by something then I was finally able to recognize that that's not how my higher self wanted me to feel about that situation and so it was up to me to change my thoughts and change my beliefs in order to get more in alignment with that higher self or with source energy and so there were all these these ways that started to emerge that were, were really worth celebrating because I had finally taken the time to turn my awareness inward and start creating my existence and creating my reality and and embracing and that you know how how powerful I truly am as an individual with the thoughts that I hold and so um yeah it's it's become sort of a, a a daily practice for me to um look at the things that i'm grateful for in my life and and celebrate them so that i can attract more of that to me could you give me could you help us understand maybe some steps that others that are going through the same journeys um that you and i both have gone through you have come out brilliantly and in, in able to create this framework as you as you had mentioned earlier, in regard to helping other people move forward, um, can you give us some steps that pe people that are going through it now m might take 
to help start to heal from all this? Yeah, um, I think one of the most important steps and, and one that I overlooked for so long was just honoring the emotion that you're feeling at the time that you're feeling it. So when, you know, when that grief arises, you just have to sit with it and, and let it flow through you because I was so afraid of showing that emotion um, outside of myself or publicly um, that I, I suppressed it and suppressed it. And, and all of that gets trapped in your body. And, you know, that's, I think where, you know, the health concerns start to arise and, and whatnot. So I, I would strongly recommend just allowing those emotions to surface. And it, it, it sort of starts as emotional intelligence in terms of like naming that emotion as it arises and and somehow by giving it a name it lessens it it sort of takes some of the power away and so then once we've processed that we can sort of take a step back and ask okay what what was the trigger there you know what caused that emotion to happen um and you know do i you know and then ask yourself like do you want to continue to feel that way or can you now look at that situation or look at that trigger from a, a new perspective and and change the emotional response that you have to it can you change that belief that you have about a situation or about a loss to make it more positive or you know it doesn't even have to jump that extremely from a really you know negative guilt sort of feeling to you know one of happiness. It, it, it doesn't necessarily happen that quickly, but like just take one step up the emotional ladder, so to speak, just to feel a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And it's, it's a really gradual process and it's a practice and um, you just have to keep reminding yourself. And, and that's, I think, part of the beauty of the experience is that we, we forget every day we wake up and we have these emotions and we forget how much control we have over our lives. But as we practice and, and remember a little bit more every day, we just can feel a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And eventually you can, you know, be in that transcendent space too, is unconditional love. And then you're there more and more of the time. <laughs> That's brilliant, actually, yes. I think we just need to take the first step and then uh, take the next step and the next step and the next step. That helps us to move forward. Um, <clears throat> I know that you've contributed to one book, uh, Prosperity Codes, that uh, our friend Bridget is about ready to publish. Uh, that it may have been published. It's coming out the third. Has it already been published? Yeah, yeah. Just last Tuesday it was published. Last so, Tuesday? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you, you've uh, obviously talked about the one that you actually have been writing yourself, which is Celebrate Your Grief. Have you always wanted to be an author or that this is something that uh, when you started finding your new purpose, that uh, this evolved? Yeah, I, I, I never thought I was a good writer. Like I said earlier, I was really strong in math and physics and, and sort of that science-based stuff. And um writing was something that really terrified me. And so I didn't, I didn't know that I would be on this journey and be where I am now. And um, it sort of, it started, oh gosh, maybe seven years ago now, I was um, 
uh, lab assistant at a water and environmental lab in town and and they got bought by another company and so I was laid off and I I that was an ego breaking moment for me it really sort of cracked me open and I had to redefine myself and as I as I said before I always wanted to be a fashion designer and I thought well now here's my opportunity to you know dedicate myself to exploring this as a possibility and I I did a, a year-long design project, a zero waste design project, where I created a garment out of one yard of material every week for a year. And then I blogged about it. And so I got more feedback about my writing than I did about the designs that I was creating. And so that kind of started the whole writing um, process for me. And um, the next blog I started was um, called Exercise Your Breath. And I started writing about different breathwork techniques and practicing them, and 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 it, and it just evolved into me writing a book. And I mean, the first book that I started writing, I think I've started writing a few now, but they they were very different than what ended up becoming Celebrate Your Grief. And so every every step has just sort of propelled me along this journey. And I I didn't realize that my my purpose was to talk about self-love and to talk about this this self-realization journey and and you know share the idea that you know we're capable of creating our own realities but now that i'm here it feels it feels really rooted and i i'm happy to have that as my uh purpose in life so it's a really good feeling when you connect with your purpose and you understand what you're doing here and how you got there i I, I relate to you in regard to that. I had to reinvent my life after I got injured on the job, and I was told I couldn't be a cop anymore, and uh, um, got put in a wheelchair. Uh, I was told I'd be in that wheelchair for like the rest of my life, and I will tell you that I walked my oldest daughter down the aisle, and the wheelchair's in the garage. So, you know, I reinvented my life and created new purpose, and that's why I talk to people all, all over the world on One More Thing Before You Go and tell brilliant stories like yours. Um, yeah, yeah. Of, of coming from a dark place and into a light place and triumph over tragedy and overcoming grief, loss, and moving forward and getting to say what you didn't get to say. That's yeah. why we're here. So that's a, that's a fantastic thing. Um, <clears throat> you also have a website that you help people with you know, that they can reach out to you and, and you can help them through their grief. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, carriescott.com. And um, I have my soul selves framework on there and there is a quiz that people can go and take to determine what which soul self they are currently residing in which is sort of a fun sort of personality test for your soul if anybody's interested in taking that i think that'd be that i think it would be very interesting in fact i want to make sure that i put that link as well as your website i'll put a link directly to that in the show notes so we've got it um celebrate your grief when can we expect to be able to obtain it? Oh, I, I, I wish I had a date for you, but I don't yet. It's out with beta readers right now, and I sense there's going to be at least one more um, big edit before um, I can really tie a bow on it and, and start sending it out to agents and, and looking for a publisher. But um, yeah, hopefully within the year. I mean, that would be amazing if, if it all came together in the next year. So, so we'll say, we'll just put it out there and say 2023. That would be great. Really looking forward to it. Um, <clears throat> this is one more thing before you go. 
So before we go, do you have any advice for anybody else or words of wisdom that uh, are going through what you and I have gone through? I would say that it is important to remember that we are supposed to feel good, that it is our birthright to feel bliss. And when we're feeling something different, um, to to tune into that and, and to question it and um, question our beliefs because our beliefs are really malleable and we are capable of of changing them so that they become more in alignment with who we authentically are so yeah question question your beliefs often it's amazing words of wisdom thank you very much i think that uh, everybody should take that to heart carrie i, I really am uh, grateful that bridget connected us thank you very much for coming on and sharing your story and your journey I think that what you have created is a very positive environment to help people move forward in their lives. So thank you for being on the show and joining us in this conversation. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it so much. It's always a pleasure to be able to share my story. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. That's BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.